You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, everyone. So, Tangaweezy. It means ginger in Swahili and is the name of a really great ginger beer made by Coca-Cola that's super popular across Sub-Saharan Africa. In January 2014, I was in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. I was there doing research on the Tanzanian energy sector for a report BNF does on emerging markets called Climate Scope. I think over the course of the week, I had at least a dozen Tangaweezies. One I had, or maybe two or three or four, was one evening over the course of a long meeting at the pool deck of my hotel, overlooking the Indian Ocean. The meeting was with a representative of one of the major development banks, who was more than happy to chat for some reason. And since I was there to find out as much as I possibly could, I was perfectly content to sit there and sip the Tanguizi and listen. One thing he said has stuck with me all these years later. He said he's not interested in funding or building power generation assets in Tanzania or sub-Saharan Africa anymore. He said there's enough of that. There's enough generation. There's enough power plants. He said the only thing that matters, the only thing the region needs, and the only thing he's going to work on is transmission or power lines to get the electrons from A to B. Today, we've got Antoine Vanya-Jones, an energy analyst from BNF's Europe, Middle East, and Africa team, in to tell us if that's right or not. He'll walk us through some of the challenges and some of the opportunities across Sub-Saharan Africa. Our discussion will be based on a report he recently published titled Sub-Saharan Africa Market Outlook 2020. I will say, in our discussion with Antoine, we really just scratched the surface. There's a lot going on in this region and a lot to consider for those looking at this market. I would encourage BNF clients to have a look at this report on BNF.com, the BNF mobile app, or the Bloomberg Terminal to get further details and for topics we don't cover in this short conversation. As always, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the show. If you like the show, please go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Mark Taylor, here with Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF podcast. Antoine, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dana. It's great to be here. We are going to talk about sub-Saharan Africa, and I would love for us to just kind of set the ground a little bit as we get started. How are we defining this region? Because actually, it doesn't have a straightforward definition, does it? No, it doesn't. And you see a lot of different definitions for sub-Saharan Africa. At BNF, we take a pretty expansive definition. So everything sort of south of Morocco, south of Egypt, um, we count as sub-Saharan Africa. What does energy look like in this region of the world right now? So energy looks very different to how it looks in a lot of other regions. I mean, basically, we have a wide range of countries with different geographies, which have very different energy systems. And the technologies they use to electrify their populations varies enormously. But one thing that really is common across the board is the fact that many large segments of the population don't have access to electricity. So only about seven countries have more than half of their population having access to electricity, which is pretty 
shocking. But otherwise, it really varies. You have countries that are dependent on hydro, countries that really burn a lot of coal, and countries that are relying on importing costly fuel. So oil, usually heavy fuel oil, diesel, which is very expensive. So as we get into this report, can you tell us kind of the big questions you were hoping to answer in doing the research? So the report was commissioned by um, the Department for International Development of the British government. And um, the big question we were given to begin with was to look into the state of play for renewables. So what investments have you made and, and where are we going just across the board, which is a pretty wide question. And it got even wider because we realised that as we went into the subject, we actually had to understand what's going on in other sectors and with other technologies because obviously everything is linked. So we ended up just trying to understand the big trends affecting the power sector across the board, looking at everything from electrification to coal and to renewables and clean energy investment. And this clearly doesn't seem like a report you can do just by you know, downloading some data from some site, I don't know, and doing some modeling on at your desktop. It seems like you have to get out there and do it. So we're very lucky at BNF, um, especially with our emerging market coverage. So we have a yearly project called Climate Scope where we send our analysts across the world to collect exactly the kind of data that we rely on for this kind of report. And that's often hard to get. So it involves going to countries and, and trying to convince people basically to give you data and information, do interviews with them and see what they can get in return. So, for example, I went to Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire last year and ended up sitting down with um, as many stakeholders as I could, whether it was development agencies or um, government, the ministries, regulators, education agencies, and just having conversations about what's going on and seeing what kind of data they could share. What was the feel? Was it, was it that Africa is open for business or sub-Saharan Africa is open for business or is that oh, there's just so many challenges, you know, they're hard to, to overcome? So it really varies from country to country. So with this project explicitly, we look at renewables and renewables investment. And the picture really differs um, depending on where you look. There are some countries like um, Ghana, for example, where governments have come out and said that they actually think that solar is a bit too expensive for their needs. Whereas Others, like Senegal is an example, really see the benefits of the cost decreases we've seen in recent years and really want to use that to help wean themselves off more expensive options such as relying on heavy fuel oil and diesel to power their populations. So as we're looking at this as a region, I know it's difficult to take a series of independent countries and kind of tease out some themes. Um, we're going to do our best here today to see you know, a little bit about what the future holds. As you were doing this research and kind of looking towards the future, kind of what was the bright spot that you saw in here? Let's start with opportunities rather than challenges. Sure. So Sub-Saharan Africa is starting from quite a low base in terms of renewables investment. And for example, when you look at emerging countries across the globe, 107 gigawatts of clean energy was installed over 2018. And when you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, that accounted for less than 1% of that total figure, which is really not that much. So we're starting from a very low base, but what we are seeing is is pretty rapid growth, which really rivals what we're seeing in the fastest growing regions in the world in terms of the rate at which renewable energy investments are accelerating. So, for example, we track and we have forecasts for solar for as a technology that we look at in particular, and we're seeing double the amount of the capacity of solar installed in 2021 compared to 2018, which is a pretty big leap. 
So if you're seeing this rapid growth, where is it coming from? Who are doing these projects? So it's interesting because Sub-Saharan Africa is quite unique in how important donors are. And that can be development finance institution, multilaterals like the World Bank. And they often work in partnership with countries to set up procurement programs. So these are schemes which provide subsidies and support for developers who want to develop renewables projects. So when we look at different countries, we we rate and see and look at what kind of environment they offer for investors. But it's also a good idea to see where the donors are looking. And one of the big things we've seen are some headlines being made with record low prices um, across much of the region through procurement programs like renewable energy auctions under Scaling Solar, for example, which was backed by the World Bank. So I think I'm going to have to take us down a notch. When I read this report, it seemed pretty bleak to me that there are actually some substantial challenges that face developers or countries in trying to procure renewable power. One of them makes me wonder, like, what is driving the growth of renewables? Because in the report, you said that a lot of these markets are oversupplied for energy, but there's a lot of energy that's unavailable. So actually, could you just explain that for us? What does it mean that there's an oversupply of energy and... Yeah, definitely. When you're talking about some, in some cases, half of the country not having access to energy, what, yeah. how is that an oversupply? So that's a really good question. So there's two levels to this. One of them is when you look at certain countries, we, we look at their demand. So the overall power that's consumed by the population. And um, in a lot of cases, you actually see that there is enough in terms of what's called nameplate capacity. So the amount of capacity that is represented by power plants that are built and are running in the country to um, to cover that demand, which is a bit of a surprise to many people. But there are two things to bear in mind. The first is that the amount of time that those power plants are available, it really can vary dramatically. So you can have years where, for example, there are droughts and um, big hydraulic dams that supply half the country's population just aren't able to to provide as much electricity as you'd want. That's worsened by the fact that a lot of these power plants are aging and lacking in investment, which means that they really struggle to perform to their full capacity. And the other side of this is that demand is often constrained by transmission so there's, and distribution. So there's a lot of investment that's required in power grids in particular. And this is one of the massive challenges is that demand is what we call constrained by the fact that not enough transmission is being built. And that's because it's a risky business and there really isn't that much private investment at the moment. That's something that we're seeing to change, but it's seeing changing, but it's taking time and really only just taking off. How are you seeing it change? Um, For example, countries like Kenya um, have a handful of projects, maybe five sort of power lines that are privately backed that are in the works. But that's, again, they're all under development at the moment. And the British government has also um, created a company called Gridworks, which um, was launched last year and serves to invest specifically in power grids. So there's this recognition that we really need to focus on investment in transmission as well as building power plants and renewable energy capacity to flow over those transmission and distribution power lines. So you're talking about how there's oversupply, but maybe that has to do with the fact that all of these things are ultimately, by these things, I, by the way, I mean energy supply, are individual little islands unto themselves. And this could be an opportunity for countries to lean on each other and lean on each other's energy systems. But what's really standing in the way of a more expansive grid connection? So 
that's completely right. And there are a lot of countries that um, are trying to interconnect. So they're trying to build power cables that are cross-border so they can draw from each other's, um, or they can benefit from each other's um, relative, you can say, strengths in terms of energy production. So you might have one country where, for example, in Europe, you have countries that produce a lot of solar at one point that might benefit another country where the wind isn't blowing as much and they aren't able to produce. So that can be great in terms of maximizing how economical your power fleet is. And that's something that we're seeing being recognized in sub-Saharan Africa through what's called power pools. So there are a number of different power pools that are being created and they're basically sort of organizations that are being set up to encourage the trade of electricity across borders. And one of the most successful and early examples of this is a Southern African power pool, which um, has been up and running for, well, for the last two decades. And we've seen some ups and downs and basically one of the big issues is um, the fact that a lot of generation fleets remain quite small there aren't that many private actors involved in generation and there's again this lack of investment in transmission assets which really slows down progress in other regions in your opinion would you say that these power poles and this investment into the grid is being treated as a matter of priority above or behind building additional capacity so the issue is that politically there isn't as much impetus behind a lot of these projects because of the fact that very often trading with other countries isn't seen as that attractive for administrations that want to be seen as providing power to their constituents. So very often high level, sort of high profile power projects will get more in the way of political support than um, a transmission line that could help to sell electricity to another country. To recap, there's kind of the issue of the power pools that could be more expansive. There's the one of high capacity but low availability or less availability. Yeah. There's also the issue of legacy power purchase agreements for, for older plants. But let's talk also about the challenge of off-taker. So you're an independent power producer, an IPP. You want to go build a power plant in some country, but you might struggle to get paid. Is that right? That is right. And uh, we perform a yearly update of how we see off-taker risk, which is basically the risk that you don't get paid in time or in full when you sign a power purchase agreement with an off-taker. And uh, when you look at Africa, the picture is, like you said, pretty bleak. It's not great. There are a lot of countries where it is very risky to enter into these agreements. And it means that you have to invest in um, various forms of guarantees and insurance, which make projects more expensive and also skews the playing field towards bigger projects. And that's basically down to the fact that effectively most of the region's utilities are bankrupt. And that's for various reasons, but there's only really, the World Bank has done a comprehensive report on the subject and it found that it's only really in Uganda that um, utilities are able to cover their operating expenses, which is really one of the big hurdles facing the sector. But it means that donors and various multilateral institutions have a role to play in terms of supporting these projects and creating the frameworks. And that's something that we are seeing over the last uh, few years. Well, what is different in Uganda that the utility is able to cover its cost? So the Ugandan power sector was reformed towards the back end of the 1990s and what we call sort of liberalized, unbundled, which means that the um, historic monopoly on um, the operations of the power sector, so you had one company that was doing everything from producing power to selling it to customers. And those various businesses got broken up and were actually... After a few hiccups and a lot of political pushback, like it hadn't been a smooth ride, managed to um, find a way of, of 
operating efficiently and that's something that that really is um, an exception and is down to a lot of um, factors that are particular to Uganda um, but liberalization and, and breaking up monopolies isn't always the way forward we saw in Nigeria also had a very comprehensive breakup of its historic utility and creating many um, local distribution companies called discos but um, actually we see that most of them are also bankrupt and it shows that this idea that liberalisation is the way forward does have a lot going for it, but it's not a panacea to the region's problems. When we talk about Africa and sub-Saharan Africa specifically and providing access to people who don't currently have access to energy, there has been some discussion around this view that maybe the grid could look very different and maybe the way these central utilities that we're used to seeing where we're sitting right now in Western Europe or where Mark and I are from in the United States, that that's not the way that things need to be done and that maybe we could have a very fragmented, just locally handled grid from here to there, which doesn't support the ability to trade power across lines unless you've got great connection really, really organized. How would you say those two scenarios compare with one another? Because they are at odds. You either have to go big and organize or you have to go really fragmented. Do you not? So it's not an either or. Some countries treat it as an either or. And um, in countries like Cote d'Ivoire, for example, um, the build out of the grid has been quite successful of the main transmission grid. And that means that there's less um, sort of political interest in creating a framework that would be favourable for more distributed options. When we talk about distributed options, that can be anything from a small solar home kit, um, which would power a household and really not any big appliances in a lot of cases, to a mini grid, which could power a whole community. And they're very different in terms of business cases and in terms of the level of subsidies or financing that they need. In Uganda, for example, the government has been creating concessions, so sort of staking out areas that are to be electrified specifically by mini-grids and provide a subsidy as well for that to happen and cover connection costs and expenses that really make it um, make projects viable because a lot of these projects, like most historical electrification experiences throughout the world, uh, really rely on government funding. So let's say I'm looking at the sub-Saharan African market to potentially build a project there. What do I need to know? We've outlined the challenges, but we've also outlined that there's demand. So what do I need to know before I jump in? So you need to be tracking um, what tenders are being put out, what auctions um, are being held, what kind of criteria um, those auctions are being held under. It's also a good idea of understanding the sort of longer term trends that are happening in these markets. So if you're looking at rural electrification, distributed options, it's really useful to look at a lot of these countries have established sort of roadmaps for electrification, which can really help investors understand what they're expecting in terms of mini grids being built or in terms of the role for, for grid extensions. Other than that, targets are often missed and progress towards them is often lacking, but they do provide a good idea of what's going on. But one of the biggest indicators of where opportunities lie are, is where investment is happening today. So that's something that we try and help our clients with and is something that is worth tracking. So we see a lot of progress in most promising markets recently happening in markets like Kenya and Senegal, which have been watched for a long time, but are really um, starting to bear their fruits today. And that's, that's really um, one of the big challenges is understanding that things can change quickly and that markets that were dormant for a long time can also really light up. So remind me again, what were the two countries that you went to? 
I went to Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire just over the last year for this specific project. So I want to know a little bit about your personal experience. What was it like going and trying to get this information, given that it wasn't a massive data download from a computer? So it really varies on how excited the government is in terms of attracting investment in renewables um, and understanding that really getting their getting this information out to investors, which is ultimately what we do, is um, is worth their while. And um, in Cote d'Ivoire, there's a lack of enthusiasm. They really, they, they've got quite a substantial power fleet already. It's running quite well compared to their neighbours. And there's something of a regional power giant. Whereas in Senegal, it's a market that's changing very fast, that really does need renewables. And alongside investment with renewables and future interest in gas is understanding the value of having investors have information at their fingertips and drawing them in. So from my personal experience, it was very different sort of trying to talk to maybe less enthusiastic Ivorians and then going to Senegal where there was more of a recognition that there was a lot to be done and one from um, explicitly talking about sort of offering up data and then being willing to answer some quite difficult questions sometimes. And then going into this, you probably had assumptions. So what was the thing that was kind of most interesting or changed your mind the most in the process of the research? So something that's really interesting is, is over the last year, we've seen headlines being made with these renewable energy auctions that have been held in sub-Saharan Africa in countries like Zambia and Senegal and hit really low prices for solar. So we're talking um, $4 cents per kilowatt hour or less, which is pretty competitive at an international level and really surprising when you look at the risk profile of some of these projects. And what surprised me was actually that a lot of developers were quite wary about these numbers and a bit frustrated because they saw that when they went to governments and tried to suggest power projects um, and tried to take part in local tenders, they were being asked for those same prices as were being hit in these big international auction schemes. And that was something that was very difficult because it isn't reasonable when you don't have the same sort of de-risking frameworks that the World Bank Scaling Solar Framework has and um, is ultimately something that needs to be really understood as we go forward. So there's a lot of momentum in the sector and in the region, but that also needs to be put into context. And that's what we try and do. Antoine, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dana. Thank you, Mark. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.